the passage we're going to look at today is actually a prayer. It's a prayer that Paul prays for these Colossian believers. As I said a couple of weeks ago, Paul never met these believers in, in Colossae, the city of Colossae. He never personally encountered them or met them. He never interacted with them. But Paul knew their pastor, Epaphras, really well. It was Paul that led their pastor, Epaphras, to the Lord. It was Paul that discipled Epaphras. And Epaphras took the gospel back to Colossae. And from uh, Epaphras' witness and his preaching, a church formed there. So Paul may not have known the Colossian believers, but I'm sure there was some kind of relational connection there with those believers. And he saw them as his own children. I think you see that as we talk about the prayer today. Epaphras came to visit Paul while Paul was in prison. Paul spent a lot of time in prison, by the way. Epaphras came back to visit Paul while Paul was in prison, and as they carried uh, out a conversation, Paul asked Epaphras questions about the church in Colossae, and Epaphras answered those questions and shared with Paul some of the concerns he had about his young and growing church. There were false teachers that had come in and were beginning to distract those young believers, uh, distract their focus, taking their focus off of Christ and putting it in other places. And so Epaphras was, was expressing to Paul those concerns. And in response to that, Paul takes time to write this letter, the letter of Colossians, that we call the letter to the Colossians. And Epaphras took this letter back to them and read this letter and they studied this letter and used it as a resource to get them back on track Today's passage is a prayer. In verses 9 through 14, Paul tells the people in Colossae, hey, I am praying for you. I am praying for you, and this is how I am praying for you. And we see in this prayer that this prayer comes from the heart of a pastor, a pastor who really loves his people, a pastor who is really concerned for the well-being of his flock. And even though Paul didn't know these Colossians personally, I think you can tell as we read it together and study it, that he really did love them and he really did care about their welfare and he really did feel responsible for them. And you really get the sense that Paul wants nothing but God's best for this young church, these young believers in Colossae. I don't know about you, but as, I, I struggle all the time and maybe you do too. I struggle to offer prayers that are meaningful. Prayers that prayers that tap into the real needs of people. I, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm asked to pray for people, I don't even really know how to pray. I don't. I, I really don't know. Um, and sometimes when I'm asked to pray, let's be honest, sometimes when I'm asked to pray for people, I find myself just kind of going through the motions with it. Anybody else like that? <laughs> Thank you for that handful of honest people out there. I appreciate it. Sometimes I almost feel hypocritical when I'm praying for people because I don't feel like I've really touched the heart of what they need. And I don't really feel like I've brought before the Lord the real purpose 
and the real meaning of what they're asking me to do and pray for them. And, and uh, this prayer, as I studied this prayer this week, I, I was struck by the power of it, the meaning of it. I was struck by the purpose of it. I was struck by the fact that this is a pattern that I, can, that I can follow to pray for you. It's a pattern that you can follow to pray for me. It's a pattern that, that, that we, could, we could use to pray for one another. Because truth be told, we're all priests in the kingdom of God, right? And we're all interceding or should be interceding for one another, right? It shouldn't be, let's go to the pastor so he can pray for us. It should be, hey, you're my brother, you're my sister, will you pray for me? Can I pray for you? Because you're the priest as much as I'm a priest. Amen? You see, I think we really need to get hold of the fact that prayer is the engine that makes the church function. It makes the church powerful. It makes the church effective. Prayer. It, it, it goes back to prayer. Andrew Murray said this. He said, we must begin to believe that God in the mystery of prayer has entrusted us with a force that can move the heavenly world and can bring its power down to earth. I think when we go before the throne, room, before the throne of God and pray and intercede on behalf of other people, we need to know what we're doing so we can see the kingdom of heaven come to earth, so that we can see the will of heaven done here on earth. And I think this little passage of scripture offers for us a way to pray with more meaning, with more power and with more purpose. And I hope that as we study this together, it's going to challenge you to pray along these lines. Because I believe if we begin to play, pray along these lines, I think we're going to have a stronger church. We're going to have healthier believers. We're going to have stronger families. And I think we'll be more effective in doing what God has called us to do here in Calera, Alabama. Amen? So let's read this passage of Scripture together. Let's study it together at the end of the service. We're actually going to open up the altars for prayer for specific needs. So if you've come to the service today and you need God to move in your, way, in your life in a specific way, we're going to take some time and pray for you along those lines while the rest of us worship the Lord. Here we go. Let's read this passage of Scripture together. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. I pray, Father, that as we study and meditate on this passage of Scripture this morning, that you would get me out of your way and you would say to your people what needs to be said. I pray that you would give us ears to hear a mind to receive, and a heart to embrace the truth that's here. And I pray that somehow we would begin to put this, these truths into practice so that in this day, in this age, we could represent you well here among each other, but also in the world around us. I pray, God, that you would help us to see this calling we have to, to, to be priests, a kingdom of priests, 
priests who intercede, who stand between men and, and God. Help us to see this, the importance of this ministry that you've called us to, this ministry of prayer, and help us, God, to begin to pray with more purpose, more meaning, more power, so that we could see your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth, just as it is in heaven, so that the darkness could be dispelled by the light that you give, so that hatred would stand at the perimeter as love moves in and takes over. We love you, Jesus. We thank you that you've given us this responsibility. Help us to take it seriously. Help us to be the people that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, we're not, each of these points we could really camp on and spend a lot of time on, and I'm tempted to do that, but I'm not going to. I want to present to you this pattern of prayer that comes from a pastor's heart, and I hope that you will implement it in your own life. And the first part of this pattern is this. When we pray for others, we ought to pray for others to know God and know God's will. The first part of this pattern is that we pray for others to know God and know his will. Verse 9 says this. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Now, if, if you were to ask people what they want you to pray for, most of those answers would vary. Some people would say they want you to pray that they would enjoy better health. Others would ask you to pray for them to get a better job. Others might ask you to pray for them to have a better marriage or for them to be a better parent. And there's nothing wrong with, about praying for people along those specific lines. But if you asked Paul the question, Paul, what do you want me to pray for you? Paul would have said, I want you to pray for me to know Christ better. I want you to pray for me to know Christ better. I don't want you to pray for me to get out of prison. I don't want you to pray for the persecution to stop. I don't want you to pray that I enjoy better health. I don't want you to pray that I get to enjoy a steak dinner every night. I want you to pray for me that I know God better. He said in Philippians 3.8, yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For everything, uh, for his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. You see, in Paul's value system, and I think it ought to be our value system too, nothing in life is worth more than knowing Christ. Everything else is secondary. Everything else is secondary. Knowing Christ is the one thing we should want most in life. Why? Why? Why is that the most important thing? Why is that the way we ought to pray for one another? The Bible says that we're called to be like God, right? We're called to be like God, but we can't be like God if we don't know who God is. The Bible says that we are created to worship God. But we can't worship God if we don't know who God really is. The Bible says that we are called to serve God. But we really can't serve God unless we know what God wants from us. The Bible says that we are called to trust God. 
but we really can't trust God until we know how trustworthy God is. The Bible says that we are called to obey God, that that's where our, 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 our happiness will be, our blessing will be. We're called to obey him, but we really can't obey God unless we know what God really expects. Knowing God is the greatest need of our life. Knowing him more and more and more. That's what we really need beyond anything. Every other need we think we have is secondary to that need to know God. John 17, 3 says, and this is the way to have eternal life. Now, when we talk about eternal life, we're not just talking about a lengthy life. We're talking about the quality of that life. This is the way we, uh, and this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. You see, the key to life is to know God. The key to happiness is to know God. The key to blessing is to know God. The key to contentment, to satisfaction, is to know God. The key to good health is to know God. Not just know about God. Not just to know of God, but to know God. To know God personally. To know God experientially. To know Him for yourself. You can't know God through somebody else. You have to have a personal knowledge of God. If there is anything in heaven or on earth that can make your life better in every way, in every conceivable way, it's to know God better. If we know God better, we'll trust Him more. When we trust Him more, we'll worry less. If we know God better, we'll enjoy more of His love. If we enjoy more of His love, we'll fear less. If we know God better, We'll experience more of his power. If we experience more of his power, we'll experience less weakness. Does that make sense? So if we're going to pray for one another, that's a good place to start. Pray that we know God better. Pray that we come to know God better and his will. But we've got to go on. We've got to go on. If you really want to pray meaningful prayer, there's a second part to this pattern. If we're going to go on and pray as the pastor prays here, we need to pray as Paul did in verse 10. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. In other words, Paul says, pray for others to please God. Don't just pray for them to know God, but pray for them to please God. You see, knowing God, knowing God should always lead to pleasing God. Right thinking, John, give me an amen on this one. Right thinking should always lead to right conduct. Thank you, John. It was weak, but I'll give you that. You see, knowledge and obedience should always go together. The ultimate aim, the ultimate aim of wanting to know God better is living to please God more. That should have gotten a bigger amen. I want you to write that down. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. I should have put it up there. The ultimate aim of wanting to know God better is living to please God more. The ultimate aim, Denise, you're writing it down? The ultimate aim of wanting to know God more is living to please God more. Know God better. <laughs> more and better. So, 
So when you pray for others, when you pray for others, you need to pray that they would use that growing knowledge of God and His will to please God with their lives, their behavior, their attitudes. You see, here's the deal. When people live to please the Lord, the Bible says all kind of good things begin to happen. When people live their lives to please the Lord, all kinds of blessings begin to manifest themselves in the lives of those people. Let me just point out a few of them to you. Long life, which would go along with good health. Proverbs 3, 1 and 2, you can go ahead and look that passage up. I'm not going to quote it, but this is the truth. This is what the Bible says. Generally speaking, when we live to please the Lord, our health is better and our lives are longer. I guess because we put fewer pills in our body and less alcohol in our system. and That kind of helps things, doesn't it? Living to please the Lord, and you will experience protection. Hardships are going to come. Adversities are going to come. That's just the nature of the world that we're in. And we're not immune from those, but we know that ultimately God's got his hand on us. And everything is filtered through his hand if we're living to please him. We'll experience joy. Want a little bit more joy in your life? Live to please the Lord. Pleasing God brings the deepest joy. It is the soul's greatest satisfaction because you got to understand this. That's what you were created to do. When you're doing what you're supposed to do, suddenly there's a sense of fulfillment in it, a sense of purpose and meaning. And you know that God is in control of all the things that are going on around you. So you have the, it's not your circumstances that bring joy. It's the presence of God that brings you joy. Peace. Good Lord. I don't know about you. I need more peace in my life. Well, if I need more peace in my life, it's a matter of me living to please the Lord because he offers peace in the midst of all the turmoil and all the confusion. He gives me peace that passes all understanding. Peace the world can't give to me and the world can't take away. He offers me an assurance of salvation. As I live to please the Lord, it confirms that I am who I think I am, a child of God. If I live to please the Lord, I can expect answers to my prayer. Because pleasing God sets us up. It helps us pray according to the will of God, according to the word of God, and God always fulfills his word. If I'm living to please the Lord, I will experience the abiding presence of God in my life. The Lord promises to be with us always. This is true. Whether we're pleasing him or not, the Lord has promised, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Even when we fail to please the Lord, yes, it says, even when we're faithless, he is faithful. But here's the reality of it. When we live to please the Lord, then we're made so much more conscious or aware of his presence in our life. And we see his hand at work everywhere. Because when you're looking for God, you're going to see him. Here's what I think, guys. Here's what I think. I think I need to change the way I pray for you. I think I need to change the way I've been praying for some of you. Instead of just praying for you to enjoy better health, instead of just praying for you to get a new job or have a healthier marriage, I need to pray that you would just begin to live your life to please God. Because if, I, if, if you begin to live your life to please God, you're going to be setting yourself up for better health. You're going to be setting yourself up for a better job. You're going to be setting yourself up for a healthier marriage. Does that make sense? 
If you're pleasing God, you are setting yourself up for all kinds of good things to come your way. Here's what I think. I get asked all the time, Pastor, how can I pray for you? Here's how I want you to pray for me from now on. Pray that I would live my life to please the Lord. Live my li- I want you to pray for me that I would live my life to please the Lord. Because if I'm living my life to please the Lord, I am setting myself up for all kinds of blessings. Blessings I may not even realize I'm enjoying until I get to heaven and look back and think, wow, God, you've been good. Let's pray for one another. Let's pray for others to know the will of God, to know God. Let's pray for others to please God. The third part of this pattern is this. Let's pray for others to have strength, to have strength to live with endurance and patience. You're not going to like this one. Pray for others to have strength, to live with endurance and patience. In verse 11, Paul prays, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. Let's be clear what we're talking about here. Endurance has to do with situations and problems. When the Bible talks about endurance, it's talking about dealing with the circumstances of life. The Greek word for for endurance literally means to remain under. To remain under. We would say it like this. Hang in there. Don't quit. Hang in there. Don't quit. Patience, on the other hand, has to do with difficult people. We don't know any of those, so this really doesn't apply to us. <laughs> that was a big amen from you, and I know it's not true. Okay, anyway. Patience has to do with difficult people in our life, people who get under our skin, people who are just making our life miserable. It, it, and the, the Greek word for patience literally means here long-suffering. I don't even like the sound of that word. Long-suffering. Suffering long. I don't care how you say it, it's not good. (laughs) Or forbearing. We would say it like this. Cut them some slack. Don't give up on them. Cut them some slack. Don't give up on them. So, here's how Paul's instructing us to pray here. You're not going to like it. When people ask us to pray for them about problems and people, they usually want us to pray that God will resolve the problems and remove the people. Amen? That's what they're wanting us to pray. But Paul says, don't pray that way. You're not going to like this. Paul teaches us here to pray a different way. He teaches us to pray that they would receive the strength to hang in there with the problem and not quit. And he teaches us to pray that they would receive strength to cut those people some slack and not give up on them. Not resolve it. Not remove it. Paul says, no, you pray that God would give them the strength to bear up under it and not quit. You pray that they would receive strength to be patient with those difficult people to hang in there, to let God have time to work in them, to change them. We don't like that kind of praying, do we? We want quick fixes in our culture. We're looking for fast results, right? Sometimes, as we have figured out, most of us in recovery, it is a process. 
The seed is planted. The roots take time to grow. The change can seem to take forever, but it's process, not perfection. Progress. As slow as that might come, we're not going to quit. We're going to hang in here. You know, I'm amazed at the people that want a quick fix to problems they have spent 30 and 40 years creating. I have seen God deliver some from a lifetime of stupidity. They have dug a hole really deep, and I have seen God miraculously, supernaturally, reach down and pick them out of a hole and put them on a solid rock, only to watch them a few months later begin digging the same hole again because they didn't understand the cost, the price that was paid. They didn't appreciate it, showed no gratitude for it, thought they had done it themselves. Sometimes I believe that's why God takes us through a process of dealing with issues, of having to work our way through them so we don't want to go back there anymore. Amen? So that's why I think Paul is instructing us to pray that people would receive the strength to bear up under the pressure of that problem and be patient to, let, to give God time, room to move in that, in that person's heart. Romans 8.28 says this. One of our favorite scriptures, we quote it here all the time, and we know that, say those three words with me, in all things, and we know that, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now let's look at that verse, because I don't know how you read that verse, but this is how I read it. This verse tells me that there is a plan behind every difficult problem. There is a plan behind every difficult person that we face as God's children. This verse tells me that every time I face a problem, every time I am dealing with a difficult, difficult person, it tells me there is a lesson that I need to learn. There is a lesson to be learned in handling this problem or dealing with this difficult person. Maybe it's just God's trying to remind me of what I used to be and how I, what he brought me from. I'm just saying. When I read this verse, it tells me that there's a change that needs to be made in my attitudes or my behavior or my perspective. Sometimes the fight that I'm having with that difficult person is just because I'm being so stinking selfish myself. This verse tells me that there, there might be a character flaw or a faith defect in my heart that God has got to expose and fix. Maybe I have made something else my God instead of him. This verse tells me that there is a testimony that God is making here. That there is a story he is writing here that will ultimately be to my benefit and bring him glory. What this tells me here is that every problem I face as a child of God, every difficult person I'm trying to deal with, God has brought them into my life for some kind of reason. And usually it's to change something in me, change something about me. 
And it's the process of dealing with that problem, the, the process of dealing with that person that allows God to shape my character and form me, to make me the person he wants me to be. Now, that's not pleasant. But sometimes, sometimes when we pray, we're actually, we're actually like a doctor that offers a pill. It's a quick fix, but it doesn't really resolve the problem underlying problem that really needs to be fixed. My wife was talking about that yesterday. Back in uh, about 2000, I guess, we went through a difficult time. And uh, we went to a doctor. That's what you do, right? When you're going through a difficult time, you go through a doctor. She was struggling with some, uh, uh, really what, what we came to see is some emotional struggles that she was facing. And... Uh, the first response of the doctor when we described the problem was to offer her a pill. Here, you take this. You take this. But she said, she thought to herself, if I take that pill, I'm, not, I'm putting a Band-Aid over it, and I'm temporarily numbing the problem, but I'm not taking care of the root of the problem. So she refused the medication, and over the next few weeks, we spent some time in counseling, and we were able to get to the root of what was really going on in her life. And I ended up being the vast majority of her problem. That's what I found out. So. That was painful. What I'm trying to say is, guys, sometimes we're, we're trying to yank people and rescue people and when really God's still working on them. He's, he's, he's taking them through a, a, this issue, this problem, this difficulty, this hardship for a reason. And sometimes in our zeal to fix it, we're actually hindering the work of God. So Paul says, pray. When you pray for people, pray. Pray that they would receive the strength to bear up in the, under the pressure of those problems, that they would be patient dealing with those difficult people. Finally, he says, pray for others to live gratefully. I was talking with Sean about this the other day, I think, talking about the power of gratitude. <laughs> Just from a personal perspective, I really think gratitude will radically change the way you live your life. If you will earnestly develop, intentionally develop an attitude of gratitude, it just changes the way you see things around you. Paul says here, if you're going to pray for people, pray that they would live gratefully. Verse 12 says, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. I just want to throw this out. Have you ever noticed how much we tend to complain? Nothing's ever quite right, is it? We complain about the weather when we ought to be grateful for the shelter that we have. We complain about our income when we ought to be grateful we have a job. I did a lot of complaining this week. <laughs> we we complain. Sandy and I teach together over at Kingwood. We complain about traffic when we ought to be grateful we have a car and roads to drive on, right? Well, you get the idea. We seem to think that God owes us something else, that he owes us more. We live with this entitlement attitude. It's really kind of funny how we always point our fingers at somebody, man, just, they just feel so entitled, we're just as bad. We seem to think that God owes us more. He owes us more perfect weather. He owes us more money. He owes us more transportation options. He, he owes us more peace. 
He owes us more recognition. He owes us more influence, more good times. He owes us more good friends. And that wanting more, that wanting more can keep us feeling inferior to other people. It can keep us feeling depressed and stressed and moody and victimized. Can it? Want more. Always want more. You just after a while start, start feeling very good about yourself. But when people live gratefully, when people live gratefully, there's a paradigm shift that takes place in their heart. When they focus on what God has given them rather than what they think God owes them, it changes the way we think. It changes the way we feel. It changes the way we behave. Living gratefully brings confidence, and it brings satisfaction, and it brings contentment and peace. Living gratefully changes our perspective on life. It changes our outlook on the future, and it changes our feelings and the way we feel about the present. Listen, that's why the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances. Give, not give thanks for those bad circumstances, but give thanks in those bad circumstances, even when they're bad. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You see, when, when praying for people, it might be tempting to ask God to give them more, but it's better by far to ask God to make them grateful. Get, here's another, Denise, write this down. This is for Denise. Here it is. Getting more may satisfy a person in the short term, but learning to be grateful satisfies a person for a lifetime. That's good, Sandy. You can quote me on that tomorrow when we get to school, okay? Say it again. Getting more may satisfy a person in the short term, but learning to be grateful satisfies a person for a lifetime. Did you get it? Okay. <laughs> so Paul says, pray for others to live gratefully. Pray for others to live gratefully, grateful for the salvation that's been earned for them in Christ Jesus, grateful for the inheritance that we now have as children of God, grateful for the freedom we now have to enjoy a relationship with God in this life and the life to come, grateful for all of God's love and his blessings that continue, that he continues to lavish on us whether we deserve them or not. Gratitude, man, gratitude changes the way you see your life. Gratitude changes the way you see the world. Gratitude changes everything. I'm telling you, I found that out for myself. I told Sean the other day, I find myself at times, like we all do, hitting a quitting day. None of you have ever been there. I know you're good. Every once in a while, I come to a quitting day. I'm just ready to throw my hands up and walk away. And I have discovered this secret, that if I will... If I, if I will take my thoughts and make them obedient to Christ, and if I will turn my attention instead of complaining about what's not going right, instead look at what God is doing and all the things that are going right and begin to, to express my gratitude verbally, or at least an, uh, 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 using pen and paper, begin to express my gratitude to the Lord for all the good things in my life. Before long, I begin to realize, man, those good things far outweigh that stuff. And that stuff's temporary anyway. This is for eternity. It changes the way I see things. It, it just turns me around. I do a 180 when I start living intentionally with gratitude. So again, that pattern for prayer, that pattern for prayer that comes from a pastor's heart, Pray that people would 
know God more, His will more. Pray that people would live their lives to please God. Pray that, that people would learn to bear up under the pressure and learn to deal with those, those uh, difficult people and have the strength of God to do it. Pray that they would begin to live lives with... Man, I'm telling you, that's a prayer that will change people's lives. It'll change your life. Maybe we ought to start praying this for ourselves as well. The most important service we can offer to anybody, especially to those of us who call ourselves the children of God, is to pray for one another. And I'm challenging you to do that. God has given us this church. He's given us his church to be a house of prayer. And when we come together, we're a gathering of priests. We are a gathering of priests. And we have been given the privilege and the responsibility to intercede for one another, to pray for one another, to pray for the world around us. We've got to take this calling seriously. I wonder, if I were to, if I were to ask this question and you were to honestly answer, I wonder how, how many of you could say, Mark, I stopped this week to pray for a brother or a sister in this church. I stopped this week and intentionally brought that person and their needs to the throne room of God. I wonder how many of us would say, yeah, I did. I don't know. I hope it's a lot, but I got a feeling it was, it's not as many as I wish it was. There's no greater responsibility that we have to one another than the responsibility to pray for one another. When we pray for one another, let's pray that we would know God and His will. Let's pray that we would please God with our lives. Let's pray that we, that, that we would have the strength to, to live with endurance and patience, and let's pray that we would live gratefully. Andrew Murray said this. I'm going to close. We're going to go to the Lord and prayer for needs, particular special needs. Mike is going to come up and lead us in worship. Andrew Murray said this, if you've never read Andrew Murray, you need to start. Great South African pastor from over 100 years ago. He said, Christ meant prayer to be the great power by which his church should do its work. Christ meant prayer to be the great power by which his church should do its work. If we're going to be the people that God has called us to be, if we're going to accomplish everything God places in our hands to do, it's only going to happen as we pray and seek His face. We, there, there isn't another substitute for prayer. That's the way God's economy works. Prayer moves the hand of God. Prayer invites His presence. Prayer brings the power to change. Prayer brings the power to heal, to deliver, to set free. Prayer. Prayer. 